that's where all the lessons you learned about communication, all the lessons learned about take your own pulse before you take every somebody else's pulse and stay calm. All of those lessons come into play when these kinds of things happen. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Navy Rear Admiral Michael Middleman. Mike is an optometrist who served as the command surgeon of the U.S. Joint Forces Command and command surgeon of the U.S. Pacific Command. He was also the deputy surgeon general of the Navy. In this episode, Mike talks about the role of the optometrist in military medicine, and he shares some important leadership lessons he has learned in multiple strategic assignments. He explains the importance of military medicine global health engagement and shares the story of being part of the U.S. efforts to assist Japan following major natural disasters. Find out more about Rear Admiral Middleman and our previous guests on our website, wardogspodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Rear Admiral Michael Middleman to War Docs. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Admiral Middleman, you graduated from Jacksonville University and Pennsylvania College of Optometry. Tell us your story about joining military medicine. Wow. Well, when I was at JU, I was an NROTC student, and I was there, I'm dating myself now, towards the end of the Vietnam War. So when I, and I always wanted to be a pilot. So I had made a deal with the NROTC folks that I would do this. I got a scholarship, and I'm going to go into naval aviation. I went to my flight physical, and lo and behold, I was a soccer player with a knee injury, and I had chondromalacia patella. And that in those days, that disqualified me. So consequently, they said, well, you can't fly. Uh, and since we really don't need pilots anymore, we'll give you the opportunity to either go in an oiler or not come into the Navy at the time. And I said, I really don't want to go in an oiler. So I said, I- I'm going to get out because I've applied to optometry school. And I would like to maybe consider pursuing that. My family, I've got a family of Navy dentists. So that, that really helped me think about what I would want to do. And frankly, I'm a fan of John Kennedy. I, as a kid, I read Profiles of Courage and followed him. Always wanted to be a naval officer. So when I got to optometry school, I had the opportunity to reapply for the Health and Pension Scholarship for Grant. And uh, they didn't care about my knee. I, I'd gotten that fixed. So I became a Navy optometrist. So after you graduated from college, did you have to serve any time from the ROTC scholarship? I did not. This was, I graduated in 1975 when the services were downsizing. Okay. And I was, since they basically medically discharged me at that point on it. So you're our first optometrist on War Docs. Tell us a little bit about optometry in the military. What, what does an optometrist do in the military, particularly in the Navy, which is your experience? Yeah, optometry provides 80% of the comprehensive eye care in the military, just like it does in the country. We provide everything from refractive services to taking care of red eyes, and some places doing minor surgical procedures. Optometrists are privileged to use lasers in some instances, depending on where they're practicing. 
So it's all about division readiness in the services. And Navy medicine is no different than Army medicine, than Air Force medicine. As a matter of fact, we had an Armed Forces Optometric Society where optometrists really learned to work together. I would like to say we were one of the first joint forces because optometrists practice very similarly in all the services. Really, the primary job of an optometrist, just like the ophthalmologist, is to ensure that our forces are visually ready to go into any theater. And in the Navy, we have some very unique environments that we worry about, and submarines, and of course, naval aviation. And I, I was lucky enough to be in the Navy at the time where we were actually rewriting the rules for contact lenses, laser eye surgery, and allowing pilots to fly at least with uncorrected vision that was less than 2020. So optometrists played a key and essential role in all of those factors. Now, where on the battlefield or supporting the battlefield would you find an optometrist? You're not going to find them right at the front lines. You'll probably find them back at maybe a role four facility. Oftentimes, they, they may forward deploy with a, with a forward surgical team to provide eye care. Oftentimes, that happens when we deployed with the Gulf War. We did that. We deployed on the hospital ships. We would deploy optometrists on aircraft carriers in the Navy. So as the need uh, exists. If somebody breaks their glasses or somebody has an eye injury, oftentimes an optometrist, because there are many more of them in the services than there are ophthalmologists, the optometrist will likely be the first eye specialist that somebody might see before they might be referred to a higher echelon of care. Well, one of the things that we had discussed with the chief of the Army Dental Corps was the dental categories and readiness. And I think if the other services are like the Army, every year we're required to go get a vision exam of some kind to make sure that we're ready for deployment. Can you explain to us why it is that that's a necessary requirement for military members? Absolutely. If you're a shooter, you need to be able to see the targets. If you're going to fly an airplane, you need to be able to see where you're going. And obviously, if you're some sort of a technician, you need to make sure you have good color vision and things along those lines. And as we get more mature, our vision tends to change. And consequently, we want to ensure that your vision really remains at, at its maximum. And then there's the pathology piece. People can get glaucoma, and unfortunately, people get diabetes, mother ocular syndromes. We need to make sure that our forces are really healthy and ready before they forward deploy. So all the services are, in fact, very much in sync with that. I remember in 2003, when I graduated from West Point, that my classmates who wanted to go into aviation had to have perfect vision. But then you fast forward to 2004 and the class of 2005, and they could then have corrected perfect vision. What, what was the decision point and the decision making that went into allowing aviators to have correctable vision? Yeah, I don't know what the other services did. I was at the Naval Aerospace Medical Institute at Pensacola, where we actually wrote the regulations. And we actually did studies. We, we looked to see if there would be any functional difference between somebody wearing a pair of spectacles and flight performance. We put them in simulators. We had the Naval Air, Aerospace Medical Research Lab right next door. So we had the assets to do that. We wanted to make sure two things. One, while they're in the cockpit, especially if they're an ejection seat aircraft, they could function appropriately. And if God forbid there's a bird strike or they had to eject, what would happen? And we, we knew the glasses would fly off, so they always had a second pair of glasses. But we also knew that over a certain prescription, you have peripheral distortions. And so we arbitrarily came up with a, the 
correction. I think the Army did the same thing, 2040 or better, and, and then corrected to 2020 uh, at the time. And the, the reason we did that was we knew if somebody would lose their glasses, even with 2040 vision, they'd be able to see the instrument panel. So they'd be able to fly the airplane and they'd be able to see the cues that would be on a runway or in our case, an aircraft carrier, uh, which is a little bit more difficult to land on than a 10,000 foot runway. So our environment is a little different. The, the next decision we made was do we allow people to wear contact lenses? And that was a little bit more difficult because we had to worry about oxygen deprivation of the cornea and also drying out of the contact lenses, what would happen. And we did multiple studies. Uh, matter of fact, the submarine community led the way on that. And we finally determined that it would be okay to do that. And before you ask me, the next step was corneal surgery. What, what do we do about that? We ruled out radial keratotomy very quickly because the cornea is weakened. And so we didn't want anything to happen to the ejection. And we, we studied PRK quite a bit before we said that would be acceptable. And the nice thing was one of our ophthalmologists happened to be a former F-14 pilot, Steve Shellhorn, and he led a lot of the research on that. And he worked with another optometrist, Mitch Brown. And we were able to establish, I would say, confident standards that people would not get injured if, in fact, they were involved in an injection. So take me through the process then for an aviator who would have an age-related degradation of their vision. What would happen with them? They, they could be grounded, depending on what their visual acuity is. You look at visual acuity, you look at color vision, you look at visual field. If, if there was a, a defect in central vision, and that would degrade their vision, that would, if it's not correctable to 2020 in both eyes, they probably would not be allowed to fly any longer. The good news is it doesn't happen often. But if it does happen, you know, unfortunately, I, we, we were labeled Dr. No at NAVI because we were ground. If people would come to us for the definitive evaluation. And if we felt that they were a hazard to themselves or others, we did not hesitate to ground them. But if you could get your vision corrected back to essentially normal, then you were still be, you would still be able to be an agent. Good to go. Yeah, good, good to go. Usually there would be a waiver in place that required very close observation. You mentioned that often a optometrist may be the first eye care professional that a service member sees because they just don't have access to ophthalmology or whatever they're deployed. What kind of cases would you see? And, and do you have any good stories of some interesting cases as an optometrist? Yeah, I, I never deployed as an optometrist, but I had some interesting cases. I was stationed at Cherry Point taking care of um, rains. And I had a patient that our family physicians were taking care of that had a, a febrile illness, headache, and just wasn't getting better. Uh, when I went to see the patient, I noticed I looked in the back of the eye and the patient had papilledema, swelling of the optic nerves. And in those days, we didn't have CAT scan or MRI, so we did an x-ray. And the x-ray was able to show a brain abscess. It turns out the, the young Marine had had dental surgery a couple of weeks prior, and that was the sequelae. So that was, that was probably the most interesting case I saw there. I, I saw many cases of corneal abrasions. And unfortunately, I saw some penetrating corneal injuries secondary to trauma that I was able to stabilize and then send forward to, for ophthalmological care. The most interesting case I saw in that respect was somebody had a pencil in their eye. 
and actually went up through and into the anterior part of the skull. Good news is it didn't penetrate the brain, but that was, that was an interesting evening. I'm glad you explained that papilledema story because I noticed that on your CV was that was one of your publications was that papilledema signals brain abscess written in 1983. And I'd actually thought, I wonder if he'll, he'll cover that because that sounds like a relatively unique circumstance. It actually was. It actually was. Now, w- one last thing on the, the readiness aspect. When we had discussed dental medicine and annual visits, we're classified into different dental categories so that we make sure that if we're deployed, we don't have dental issues that arise, say, in the next six months. Is that something that falls in the similar lines of eye exams, or is there just really to make sure that they can deploy, they have their glasses, and that there's not pathology that exists? It's the latter. I wish that we had a category scale, rating scale, much like the dentist. I think the dentists do it beautifully. But for vision care, we do not. I I think that's a goal still of uh, many of the eye care professionals in the services. The important thing is to ensure that people are visually optimally corrected if they need correction. In 2000, you were the commanding officer of the U.S. Naval Hospital in Okinawa, Japan. Tell us about that assignment and any key lessons you learned that helped you later in your career. That was an amazing experience for me. It was command of the Navy's largest tertiary care hospital overseas, supporting the United States Marine Corps, the three MEF. And our, and our primary responsibility was ensure that the Marines and actually, frankly, the airmen and the soldiers that were with us were ready to fight that night if necessary. And so we had an Air Force NICU co-located with us. And so our job was to ensure that force was constantly ready to deploy. And I was there, of course, during 9-11. So we went from a peacetime footing to a wartime footing in Okinawa overnight, much like other places. But because we were forward deployed, we, we had a little bit different mission in supporting the Marines as the Marines would deploy forward to do missions. Some of our medical forces accompanied them. Most people don't realize this, but the Navy medicine supports the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps does not have their own integrated medicine. So wherever the Marines go, Navy medicine goes. And the Marines are not going to go anywhere without the Navy corpsmen. And some of those corpsmen work through my work with my hospital. My hospital actually supported them. So that was a key mission and a key lesson that we need to be there and, and ready to support. The, on the other side of it, we also were, we were providing care for families. We, we were the public health unit on Okinawa. And so I was responsible for ensuring the health and wellness of not just the service members, but their families. And so we were, if you recall around that time, we were worried about SARS and other things. So we rehearsed for the COVID pandemic over there and instituting public health measures. And because we were a military institution, we were able to do that quite favorably. The other lesson learned is that customer service of the medical staff is really important. And that we're, we're not judged by the, by the true quality of care. Our patients are not looking at quality measures. Uh, many of our patients are, are looking at the quality of service that they receive at the hospital. And that's how they differentiate that from good or bad quality care. So we really put forth an effort that we call to go the extra mile to ensure that our providers were happy and, and they were ensuring that our patients 
we're happy. And actually, we were recognized by TRICARE for giving outstanding customer service and patient care during my tenure. I think you're the first optometrist that I've met that has been a hospital commander or a hospital CEO. How does an optometrist prepare for taking over that leadership role in a hospital? And were there any specific challenges that came out of your particular training lane? How does a physician prepare to be the CEO of a hospital? We're all clinicians. In Navy medicine, much like the other services, we grow up in hospitals. Most of my clinical experiences was that we're in Navy hospitals. And as a medical service corps officer, I also had administrative collateral duties, which really taught me what needed to be done to appropriately and effectively run a hospital. I was lucky enough to be stationed at the Naval Hospital on Great Lakes, where I had the opportunity to serve as a department head and acting executive officer. I also served as a commanding officer of one of our Navy fleet hospitals while I was at Great Lakes. So I had wonderful experience and wonderful mentors moving forward. Prior to going to Okinawa as a commanding officer of Naval Atomic Sport and Training Activity, NOSTRA, that's the command that fabricated glasses and trained all the opticians for DOD. So at least that gave me the command experience moving forward. And frankly, most of my preparation was in leadership. And, and understanding that I have lots of subject matter experts in my directors and department heads uh, to ensure that the, I wasn't going to tell somebody how to do surgery, but I certainly was. My job was to ensure that they had the tools to do their job. One of the things that we've been fortunate to do on WarDocs is interview executive level officers and leaders who have been in the Air Force and the Army. But I think you might be the first person at the executive level whose career at that executive level spanned the 9-11 period. How did Navy medicine change after 9-11 and what could have been done better to adapt to those challenges? You know, N Navy medicine did, did a quick pivot, much like in Okinawa, but as, as a whole enterprise, all of a sudden we were not just supporting the Marine Corps, but we were supporting all the other services in the terms that we were sending, sending individual augmentees to places like Launchstool, to Kuwait and other places such as that. The one thing I think we could have done better earlier was to activate more of our reservists. What we did was we, we ended up not quite emptying hospitals, but taking staff directly out of hospitals. So we diminished services initially. And then fairly quickly, we, we realized that the reserves offered us a, a great deal of talent and expertise moving forward. And ultimately, we, we ended up leveraging the reserve force very, very effectively. It would have been nice if we'd done that a little bit earlier. What do you think was the hesitation to activating the reserves sooner? I think a lot of it is just culture. On the active duty side, we felt we were ready, we were prepared, we we're trained. So it would be it was easier to send folks forward. And there wasn't as much familiarity, frankly, with the reserves. As we brought more reservists on board, we realized very, very quickly that their training was up to speed. And they were really ready to go into the fight. And they're raising their hand, frankly, saying, take me, take me. And, and what we found was that the many reservists stayed on active duty through until now, frankly. And we needed that because of their expertise in civilian health care. You mentioned that, that you're a medical service corps officer. And once you reached the, the flag officer ranks, you became the Navy Medical Service Corps director. 
And one of the things that, at least in the Army, and I'm not familiar with the Navy, the Medical Service Corps is a mixture of clinicians and administrators. What was the hot button issues and what were the challenges and any memorable experiences from being the MSC chief? Where do I start? We're very much the same as the Army. The Air Force is different, but we, we have 31 specialties, uh, basically all of the allied health sciences and healthcare administration. When I assumed the role of director, we had just completed a, a downsizing of the core where we were starting to eliminate social workers and clinical psychologists, as I recall. And my job was an audiologist, and my job was to bring them back. We, there was a, a huge requirement for these specialties that certainly for the behavioral health portion. So I, I had to rebuild the confidence of those specialties that, yes, we're serious about this and basically re-recruit people who were told that they were going home. And that, that was a huge challenge. Um, once we got over that, one of the, the things I, I really tried to do was instill a sense of teamwork and camaraderie between the specialties. So like specialties like audiology and optometry would maybe be working more closely together. And we were able to integrate that in some of the hospitals, uh, which I was very proud of. But we were actually able to stabilize and build the Corps during my tenure. So we like to say the Navy Medical Service Corps is the glue that holds Navy medicine together simply through the specialties that we have. Well, I recently read an article that discussed how the Marines were trying to be more amphibious in the future conflicts that arise because the last 20 years have led to them becoming more of a land-based fighting strength. And interestingly, you were the deputy director and director for medical resources plan and policy in the office of the chief of naval operations. How did the Navy at that time resource medical assets for the combat theaters, given that the combat was largely land-based? Combat was land-based, but we supported the Marine Corps wherever they went, and we supported the Army. We had a huge cohort of Navy medical personnel launch tool supporting them, and we actually were the primary service that was supporting the hospital in Kuwait, and that, that remained in place for several years. Um, so Navy medicine, what you like to think, we're, we're sea-based all the time, but frankly, most of our forces are dedicated to the Marine Corps. And so we will go wherever they go. Where I sat at N931, plans policy, my primary job at that point was to protect the hospital ships. It's a huge funding source, and the Navy is always looking to save money, as is DOD. And so I spent a lot of time, along with the Surgeon General at the time, convincing both Navy and DOD leadership the importance of having the hospital ships for forward deployment. And it wasn't just for combat readiness, although that was important, but it was also for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions. Those ships proved extremely uh, valuable. We had the earthquake in Haiti, for instance. We sent the Comfort down there. We always have a mission in the Caribbean and the Pacific with each of the hospital ships when we're doing global health engagement missions. And this type of partner building is extremely important as people don't realize that military medicine, not just Navy medicine, Army medicine, Air Force medicine as well. And these hospital ships are essential for helping get that mission done in an expeditious way. Well, you mentioned the hospital ships, and I found it fascinating when we had discussed with Captain Sears her command of the hospital ship. And she had mentioned that some of the operating rooms in the hospital ships are really state-of-the-art. I mean, they're the most modern operating rooms in the world. When you, when you talk about funding, 
something like the hospital ship or making sure that it's resourced. What are some of the challenges? Because sometimes updating an operating room, even in the United States, is very resource intensive. I can't imagine how expensive and how much resources are required to update it on a ship. You know, it's two pots of money. Really, the Navy, per se, uh, does not own the hospital shop. It's Navy Military Sealift Command. So civilian mariners that are actually running the hospital ships. But we actually fund the hospital ships, much like the operating rooms and the medical side of it, much like we would fund U.S. Naval Hospital Okinawa. So we, we pump for it over five years. We budget for it to ensure that it has the appropriate equipment. And so it's funded just like a normal hospital would be funded. In the case of the hospital ships, because they're so large. You served as a Joint Forces Command Surgeon working with then General Mattis. Tell us about that role and any significant strategic military medicine issues for which you provided guidance at the top levels of military leadership. That was a fabulous tour. Working for General Mattis was like doing a residency in leadership. I was his senior medical advisor, and, and he really taught highly of military medicine. And my job was to keep him educated and to keep him abreast of, in particular, what was going on in the Afghanistan theater at the time. One of our job at Joint Forces Command was the sourcing of medical resources, sourcing of all resources, but in my, my case, medical resources for in-theater operations. And I, I was dual-hatted, as was General Mattis. While I, I was the command surgeon for U.S. Joint Forces Command, but I was a medical advisor to NATO because he was the uh, commander for ACT, and that's Allied Command Transformation. And that was the, uh, the Norfolk Army of NATO. So my job on that side was to work with our allies and partners who were uh, forward deployed to ensure that we had a, an efficient medical laydown in Afghanistan for the evacuation and ultimate care of patients. Well, during my tenure, I had, I had the opportunity to work with our Joint Staff Surgeon and others, because at that time, Secretary Gates mandated that you will have no more than a 60-minute window for medical evacuation. And so my job was to work with these people to ensure that we had the appropriate lift and medical capability in theater so that we can evacuate somebody who was wounded or injured to a, at least a roll two within 60 minutes. And as they say, the rest is history. That's why we had a 98% save rate. Between that and the combination of the wonderful training the medics and the corpsmen have and the self-help that people use with tourniquets and everything else. But that, that was a fascinating tour. Um, and working with General Mattis, as I said, was uh, my impression of once-in-a-lifetime experience in leadership 401. When you talk about the Afghanistan theater, I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners may know that the Air Force had Bagram the Navy had Kandahar, and then the, Brit the British actually had Bastion. Can, can you elaborate on why that subdivision occurred? Do you, do you have any insight into why the Navy was assigned just north of Helmand Province in Afghanistan? That's probably because we had more Marine concentration down there and primarily provide support to the Marines. I wasn't part of the decision-making process, but that, that would be my guess. Yeah, and it's interesting because I wore two hats. And because of my NATO role, I spent a lot of time in Bastion because my counterpart was British. And so we did a lot of work with them. And, and most people don't realize there, there was a lot of interplay between our medical professionals and our NATO allies and partners. We, we weren't doing this in stovepipes. There was a lot of teamwork and a lot of communication going on because it had to happen. It wouldn't be unusual 
for our folks to be evacuated by a French helicopter, for instance, and being cared for by French medics coming to Kandahar or going to someplace else. So it truly was a, a joint interoperable NATO team working. So you then served as the command surgeon for the United States Pacific Command. What were some of the challenges associated with that position? It was li- leaving Hawaii when I finally had orders. <laughs> no, only kidding. While I was there, the Japanese unfortunately suffered a significant earthquake and tsunami. Um, I was the senior medical officer in the Pacific. So my job was to coordinate all of the medical response for that emergency. So I would say that was probably the most interesting part of that job. Where you talk about a capstone event that takes all your training and all the things that you've done up to a point and puts it together, that was it. That's where all the lessons you learned about communication, all the lessons learned about take your own pulse before you take care of somebody else's pulse and stay calm. All of those lessons come into play when these kinds of things happen. And, and this transpired over the course of days. And my job was to ensure that the, not just the force, but the, all of our beneficiaries on Japan remained healthy and safe. And, and so part of that job was to ensure that we were one, getting information that was accurate and that was actionable, and then transmitting that information in a transparent way so that people understood what type of risk they might be taking. We didn't know which way the wind was going to blow. And so we were very prudent about doing a voluntary evacuation, for instance, for um, children and, and family members who really wanted to leave. And I think about 4,000 people actually ended up leaving. And the other thing that we had to do was, this is, this was not just a military medicine evolution. This was a, a whole of government evolution. So I had to work very closely with the ambassador in Japan to ensure that our messaging was clear and that everything that was happening on side of our bases was the same messaging and the same things that were happening outside the gate. So everybody was being treated equally. And then there's the geopolitical aspect of it, because we had to work with the government in Japan. And so we didn't want to do anything that would allow, would let them think we were putting them at risk and vice versa. For instance, do we give everybody on the base potassium iodide or not? And that, that was a political and a scientific discussion all at once. We ultimately ended up not doing that uh, because we didn't think the need was there. And we also knew we could do it quickly if we needed to. But the optic of doing that from the outside the base was not acceptable from the ambassador's perspective. And we looked at it from a risk perspective. And we, we thought it would be prudent we, we could wait. But that sucked up three months of my tour there with just making trips and talking to people, bringing experts with me. So people understood that the environment was safe. We were testing the soil. We were testing the water. We were testing the air. We had, it was amazing how quickly the services pivoted. I I had no radiation experts in my office on one day. And three days later, I had radiation experts from the Air Force, Army, and Navy. Uh, And they were developing new science. And we ultimately enrolled everybody in a registry because I thought that would be a prudent thing to do. So that if somebody came down with leukemia or something strange, 10 years from then, we would know how much potential radiation exposure, if any, they had. 
And there was very little, but at least it would be documented in their record. They say that hindsight's twenty twenty. not to make a pun with the optometrist, but couldn't resist. Is there anything from that situation that if you could go back and do it better or do it differently, what, what would you do different? Boy, there are so many things we did well and, and because I had such a great team around me. It's just, can you communicate more succinctly, communicate earlier, maybe consider just making more trips to Japan to do the face-to-face communications. We did a lot of the stuff like we're doing this virtually. Really, there's not a whole bunch I don't... People ask me, what would I have done differently? And there's not a whole bunch I would have done differently. The, The only challenge I had was communicating ironically with, with the Navy Surgeon General's office because they, they, they wanted to be a little bit more conservative than our command did. So I, I might have handled that a little bit differently. But other than that, I think I would keep the same playbook because one, we kept everybody safe and, and everybody came out of it really feeling like we had done our job as, as medical professionals. Okay, this is going to date me a little bit. So you're in the command in the Pacific, and you're trying to get back to the the Navy, the office of the Surgeon General of the Navy 20 years ago. I envision this story with you being on a Zoom call, but I, I know that's not true. Can you explain to me how it was that communication occurred in, in this time period? Yeah. But believe it or not, we had BTC. In theater, the U.S. Pacific Command, we had pretty good technology. Uh, we, we had a forward deployed force in Tokyo, so we were able to do this kind of thing. And it wasn't unusual. Actually, we also were doing video teleconferencing with National Command Authority in Washington, D.C. So at that point, President Obama was involved and Vice President Biden at the time. So the, those video teleconferencing things did occur. My discussions with the Navy Surgeon General were generally telephonic, um, sometimes one way, but we communicated as necessary. I I actually conduct basically a a, a teleconference every day with all of the service surgeons who are in the region. So I did that telephonically, just with a a phone in front of me and and several people calling into a joint line. And what, what we would do every day was we would meet at PACOM, go over all of the data that we had. I would pass that directly to all my command surgeons so they had all the information I had. And that proved absolutely worthwhile because everybody knew what the heck was going on. So you, even that, we can communicate. <laughs> you touched on this a little bit before, but how does military medicine best leverage global health engagements to foster those relationships and collaborations with not only our partners, with maybe some other nations that we really want to be in goodwill with? Absolutely. And I say, I I coined the term, medicine is a strategic enabler. And we're a strategic enabler because we can do just what you said, Doug. My commanding officer, Admiral Willard, sent me off to places like Vietnam, Cambodia, to Laos, to do just that, to do medical engagement. And not to provide immunizations and not to do stuff like that, but to help teach them how to do disease surveillance how to do cataract surgery and, and things along those lines. We spent, frankly, b- before the tsunami and before all that, I spent a good bit of my time doing just that. He sent me to Burma before people were going to Burma because we realized that 
medicine is something that is not going to be controversial. And it's something we all speak a very universal language in. So how can we establish a medical relationship in a country that we don't have any formal military relationships? I hosted my counterpart from the uh, Chinese People Liberations Army in D.C., and I hosted my counterpart from India just to help build those types of relationships. And oftentimes it involved just putting together some sort of a medical program. We conducted one in the Maldives, and we invited all of these friends and potential allies to discuss how do you do disease surveillance in the Western Pacific, and how do you do that effectively? So, you know, it builds bridges, it builds relationships, and frankly, the friendships that come out of that really help to really increase communication at the highest level. I, I remember going to Laos and sitting down with their minister of defense, uh, along with our ambassador, uh, to discuss how our military medicine could help build their capability. And we, we went to Vietnam to help them build undersea medicine capability because they're trying to develop submarines to counter uh, China. Did most of these global health engagements that you helped organize and lead, did they focus on sort of a specific specialty or disease process, or were they designed just for more holistic patient care for, for people that maybe didn't have any access? A little both. It depended on what they requested. In some instances, there was like Vietnam wanted undersea medicine expertise. So we were able to provide that. And this thing, the Pacific fleet surgeon was just now retired um, Admiral Bruce Gillingham. He and I went to Vietnam. He happens to be an undersea medicine specialist as well. So we were able to facilitate that. But many of them were just interested in maybe getting one of our labs to establish a focus in their country. We did that in Cambodia. We did that in Vietnam. We did it in Singapore to help them do forward deployed disease surveillance um, because they recognized the importance of that. So much of it depended on what their requirements were. So let's say that a nation identifies a capability gap in their medical care, how would they go about actually reaching out to the U.S. Navy or the U.S. military to say, we'd like assistance in this area? Oftentimes, they work through the embassy, and then the military attache would generally contact, in our case, U.S. Pacific Command, and we'd establish that discussion. We, we had very good relationships with all of the military attaches in the region. So I, I had a deputy, army deputy, who basically spent a good bit of his time communicating with the attaches. Laos is a perfect example. The military attaché recognized, and the ambassador in particular recognized, most people don't know that Laos is probably the most bombed country in the world. And they have a province that's the most bombed province in the most bombed country, because that's where, after, during the Vietnam War, we would basically dump ordnance. And so consequently, there is all this unexploded ordnance scattered throughout some portions of Laos, mostly northern Laos. Uh, we have built clinics uh, to assist the Laosians in treating individuals who have been injured and maimed by these devices. And obviously, I don't think the public's very aware of this, but we spend a lot of time and resources supporting these folks. And, and this all came through the embassy to U.S. PICOM. You became the Deputy Surgeon General of the Navy in 2011. What were the significant challenges facing the Navy at that time? Uh, it's all about funding. It's all about resources. The Navy has been under a lot of pressure to downsize 
at the, well, at the same time, Navy medicine is has always been under uh, pressure to appropriately support both the fleet and the Marine Corps. So our challenge was, of course, to ensure that the Navy, the DHA, well, it wasn't DHA at the time, but DOD, but health affairs understood what the requirements were so that we would be appropriately resourced. At the same time I was the Deputy Surgeon General, Congress had mandated the establishment of the Defense Health Agency. So all of the Deputy Surgeon Generals were were basically part of the working group to establish what would a Defense Health Agency look like. And I was really lucky because my counterparts were fabulous to work with. I worked with Rich Stone and Mark Ettinger, and Dr. John Woodson was the Undersecretary at the time. It was a fabulous team to talk through the differences. And you might imagine there are a lot of cultural differences that go along with this. And at the same time, we're trying to consolidate Walter Reed with Bethesda. So I had a lot of balls in the air while all this was going on. We've highlighted a lot of our past guests, and they all made a transition just as you did out of the military. And you became the president of Salus University. Tell us about your transition out of the military and your present job. Well, one, I was never planning on doing this. I'm a graduate of the Pennsylvania College of Optometry, so it's the founding college of Salus. So that's, that's the connection there. The president called me and said, I'm retiring. We thought you would be the ideal candidate to apply to be my replacement. And I said, I'm not an academic. That wasn't my plan. But my wife said, you can't stay in the Navy forever. So maybe you should think about applying. And so I did. And as they say, the rest is history. So I retired from the Navy in June of 2013, and I started as the president of Salus in July of 2013. I, I don't recommend that short transition, by the way, for anybody retiring after 33 years, but, but I did it. And it, was, it wasn't flawless or seamless, but it was about as seamless as a transition can be because leadership is leadership. And I, I came to a university that required a little bit of care and feeding at the time. And I was able to use the experiences that I gained through my many years of working in Navy medicine and and in the joint force to really get our team focused in the right way, to get appropriate assets. I was able to get the state to give us several grants to help us build primary care clinics where we needed it and things along those lines. And then to learn to work with the faculty. That was the biggest transition for me um, because academia does not move at the speed of the military. So in in Navy medicine, if I were to suggest that we need to do something tomorrow, well, it didn't often happen tomorrow, it happened close to tomorrow. In academia, if I suggest it's going to happen tomorrow, it might happen next year, there's a little bit more of consensus building that's required. That was a lesson learned for me. I, I learned that Harvard University has a program pretty much on how do you become a college president. So I had the university send me there, which was extremely helpful and understanding the right questions to ask, understanding culture and building teams in this kind of an environment. I'm lucky I inherited a wonderful faculty and administrative staff. So that's it's been kind of fun, actually. I've been here 10 years, so they're going to make me do it until I get it right. What would you say is the best leadership lesson that you've learned in your career that you wish you would have known 20 years ago? And you tell folks that you mentor now, this is one that's important. You got to learn it. You got to learn it. You, you got to be gentle with people. You've got to be gentle with people. You, you've got to listen and you can't be reactive. 
We're, we're all taught to get it done. And really, as a leader, our, our job is to listen. And then sometimes you, you can't be as gentle as you'd like to be. But you're really, you're, your job is to, is to be that servant leader, is to turn the pyramid upside down. And so we're at the bottom of that pyramid. And, and our job is to make sure that the people that are above us, those people who are actually doing the services, have those tools that they need and have the support that they need to do the job. And if we didn't learn that again through the pandemic, we really need to look at ourselves. But I, I was lucky enough to know and work for him, Mike Cowan, and he taught me that as he helped groom me. Uh, little did I know he was trying to groom me as we moved along. And that's a lesson I try to instill upon not just officers, uh, enlisted folks who work for me, but even my faculty and my senior administrators. Because I think gentle leadership and servant leadership is the most effective leadership. What is something about Navy medicine you think the average person would not know and find interesting? What most people don't realize is that Navy medicine is just, just, just not on ships. We talked about this. We are, we are a worldwide healthcare delivery system that supports the Marine Corps. We, su- we support all the services. And the, the interesting thing about us is we are prepared to go anywhere, anytime, pretty much to the drop of a hat. Uh, we are deployed worldwide right now. We're very much involved in disease surveillance uh, across the Pacific. We have a laboratory in Egypt, in Peru, and our job is to support the national security. And obviously, we're part of the Navy. But we have a, a global footprint with a, a national mission. So we're, we are a national asset. What would you want your legacy in Navy medicine to be? Boy, I, I thought about that. It's, I, I, just, I, I helped make it better. I, I helped ensure that those that we cared for were well taken care of and that those people that were under my care had everything that they need to do their job in the most effective and efficient manner. We've been speaking with Rear Admiral Middleman on Wardock's podcast. Mike, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with both of you gentlemen. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardock's is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.